it's 9:30, so it's best time. We're gonna we're gonna get started. Uh, you might be surprised to see me because last week I said that was probably my last time teaching ABF before I left. So I am pleasantly surprised to be here. Uh, you might be unpleasantly surprised, but um, very honored to be able to introduce the new uh, new series for ABF. We're going through. Uh, Ligonier's study on this book, Christianity and Liberalism, written by J. Gresham Machen. Uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of this book. <clears throat> and so there's uh, 12 or 13 lessons in this series taught by uh, Stephen Nichols, um, really smart guy, really good uh, historian, theological historian. So we're going to talk about Christianity and liberalism. This uh, this first lesson is called the present emergency. So we have uh, a number of questions to consider. Uh, I'm not going to read them all now, but I'll, I'll pray and then we'll talk about some of those and then watch the video and have some discussion afterwards. Our great trying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that you've given to us to gather together in your house and to study your word. We pray that you would be with us as we uh, discuss, and as we watch this video, Lord, please guide our conversations uh, through your Holy Spirit. Help us to feel his presence, and may uh, the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you and edifying to each other. We pray all these things in Christ's name and through your Spirit. Amen. Hey, come on. All right, so, uh, like I said, Christianity, Christianity and liberalism turns 100 this year. So, first question is, why would we study a 100-year-old book? The truths in it are still relevant today. Okay. Um, yes, that's a good answer. Are you saying that because you know the truths? No. Okay. So, if the truths in it are still relevant, then it's worth studying. Okay, that's a good answer. Why else? I mean, the philosophy moving away towards like fundamental scripture and what the world is it's all the same right like mm -hmm. we could have had this book back in the Roman times and we could have applied that same principle of scripture to scripture sure. to now like conservatism QAnon liberalism if it drifts away from scripture then the principles of this book can help deal with that yeah yeah absolutely so there's there's always been um, and always will be a, you know, until Christ returns, a <clears throat> separation between the church and the world, uh, between the truths of Scripture and what the world believes. The form that that takes in the world sometimes changes. We'll talk a, a little bit about that. Uh, so the, the errors that Machen was fighting against are not necessarily the same that we were fighting against or that the apostles were fighting against uh, during the Roman Empire, but there's still this dichotomy between truth and falsehood, and it helps to understand how that has been fought uh, historically and how we can fight it. <clears throat> Another answer uh, is just because one book that we study a lot, or should study a lot, is way older than 100 years, right? So. There's kind of a modern um, bias against old things, you know, old people, old books, old ideas. Um, 
we in the church hopefully do not share that bias against old things. We know, uh, I think it's Ezekiel talks about the old paths. Um, so scripture, much older than 100 years, and obviously uh, has lots of good, good stuff to teach us. Another answer is that it gives us perspective. So what is perspective? Yeah, right. So, um, you know, if you looked at, I don't know, a piece of paper, like uh, under a microscope, you're seeing one part of that piece of paper very clearly, very closely, but it's not until you zoom out and look at the page as a whole that you're able to, for instance, see what words are written on it, so on. So perspective, and then kind of shifting perspective. When we think about uh, historical perspective, what would we say historical perspective is? Well, looking at it from the way the people that it was written for can view it. Okay. So, culturally, we might be in a different place, but mm-hmm. being able to still look at it from how it was written to that intended audience mm-hmm. and how that intended audience would interpret that message. Yeah, definitely. Um, when we think about any, in, any piece of... Um, writing, uh, it's important to think about the historical context in which it was written, right? So, uh, for instance, in my covenant group, we're studying the the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, and there's lots of times where the commentary that that we're reading and studying, you know, points out historical facts. This is why they said, or this is one reason they said this thing in this way, because of this issue that was going on at the time. So it's important to understand that. That doesn't mean that just because it was written for a particular people at a particular time in a particular place that we can't apply it to ourselves who live hundreds or thousands of years later in a different place. Um, but it, it helps to understand um, what issues were going on then and uh, how, they, how they fought against those issues. This, this next, these next two questions uh, see here, this is uh, potentially could, could be very long answers. So we're not going to go through this because I have to leave at least 24 minutes to watch the video. And uh, I would like to talk about the video a little bit afterwards. So just think in your mind, what is, again, the title of the book is Christianity and Liberalism. Um, I'm not spoiling the book for you, but the, the intent behind the title is that these are two different things. Liberalism is not the same thing as Christianity. So Machen, uh, through the book, contrasts Christianity and liberalism. So it helps to understand what Christianity is and what liberalism is. And we'll we'll get some more detail on what Mason means when he says liberalism throughout this video study. But keep that in your mind. What do the two terms mean? How are they similar in some way? How are they different? <clears throat> and uh, the, we will talk briefly about um, these last two questions and then watch the video. So... Um, the title of this first lesson is called The Present Emergency. So, uh, Machen came up with a list of, of present emergencies for his day. So I want, just very briefly, what do you think are some of the pressing or important present emergencies of today, of our day? The 
first thing that comes to my mind is the woke agenda. Okay, woke agenda. What do you mean by that? Very briefly. Uh, this, this teaching where <clears throat> the secular world is rejecting what scripture teaches. Um, they are, I should be able to speak more intelligently on this because we just had a whole series on it, but um, the whole identity of the person and which, which affects how we are treated, how we treat others, how we view others, do we view others as a person who has a soul, and therefore how do we educate our children based off of that principle? If they have a soul, then we are educating them towards a higher calling that goes beyond just this life on earth. Um, but if, if we're educating them just to be you know, machines as like some physical phenomena, just a mixture of atoms and all this all these things that it, it is what we are, but it takes out the spiritual reality that we yeah. have. Um, it is, it's thwarting our identity and what God has actually created us to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so um, maybe a, a very broad summary of wokeness, quote-unquote, is uh, finding people's ultimate value in, in some physical characteristic, whether that's the color of their skin, their gender, uh, their economic status, so some sort of outward, what um, Plato would call an accidental characteristic. It's not an essential characteristic. We, we know that people are essentially uh, soul beings, right? So you, you, you talk about um, divorcing humanity from the essential characteristics, like people have a soul, people are created, people are fallen and sin by nature, right? So those are the essential characteristics. Accidental characteristics are what do you look like? Um, what color is your skin? What gender are you? Those don't, if that's different, that doesn't make you not a person. But if you don't have a soul, then you're not a person, right? So maybe that's a, a quick definition of wokeness. Okay, so we got the woke agenda. What, what are some other present emergencies in our day? Suicide, whether it be just the absolute destruction that we commit to our own bodies, mm -hmm. even just reckless behavior that's glorified. Yeah, definitely. Devaluing of human life. Uh, that's a great one. Uh, one more, if you can think of it. Pressing present emergency. I think it's the decline of the church and the lives of Okay, so a um, like a lessening of the influence of the church in society. It's not seen as relevant <clears throat> or essential. Okay, um, Harry introduced me to Aaron Wren, uh, the negative world. So Christianity is, or, or modern society is, is a negative world where you know previously positive world. If you were a Christian, that was a good thing that helped you in society. And there was sort of the neutral world where it didn't really help you, it didn't hurt you. Now it's the negative world. If you are a Christian, if you say that you're a Christian and you speak and behave as if you are a Christian, that hurts you in society. Okay, so 
All of these things, uh, where is the resolution to be found for these issues? Scripture, good. And uh, we'll skip that last question, but all right, so the ultimate emergency. <coughs> what is the ultimate emergency of today? <clears throat> These are some, some it, we, we just talked about three issues that are uh, not, not entirely unique to our time and place, but they are uh, in time, right? Um, although you could find aspects of woke um, philosophy a hundred years ago with Marxism. Uh, you, you can see sort of the, the roots of that. Um, they are bound to our time and place. So, but, but there is an ultimate emergency that transcends time and place. This is kind of what, what Casey was talking about with perspective and the, you know, why we're studying a 100-year-old book. Because the same sorts of things have been happening. There's always been the church against the world. Um, so what's the ultimate emergency? Yeah, yeah. So um, you'll you'll hear it in a in a minute on the video. But Mason says basically the ultimate emergency is there's a holy God, and there are sinful people who have sinned and continue to sin against the holy God. And what's what is to be done about that? And where is the resolution to that problem to be found? Well, it's the same answer for us. We know it's found in Scripture. It's found in um, um, general revelation, our consciences uh, enlightened by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but where does the world think the solution to that problem is to be found? Within yourself. Yeah, just uh, how you feel. How you feel. Yeah, make yourself you know, feel good, be happy. Um, it's kind of, it reminds me of in the military. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never been a very good runner. And the, the kinds of advice, the, the kind of advice that is given to people who are not good runners in the army is basically just be faster. Just run faster. So that's the same kind of advice that the world gives to people. Just be better. Just be happy. Just do what you want. Right? Um, the sort of individualist, individualism, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not the answer to this ultimate emergency, right? Okay, so we're going to watch this. I've got some other questions here. Uh, I suspect we won't get to them all, but um, I would like to talk about as many of them as we can. Uh, so maybe I should have left this on to have the nice music turning. All right. So I think we did a, a pretty good job of uh, kind of anticipating. Somebody turn that light on for me, please. Um, some of the stuff that he was going to say. Um, some of the, the present pressing emergencies of today that we talked about, uh, woke agenda, we talked about the devaluing of human life, and we talked about the uh, lessening of the influence of the church. <clears throat> you guys did a great job of bringing out the fact that those aren't, um, those aren't the real problem. Those are maybe symptoms of the ultimate emergency. The ultimate emergency, the ultimate problem, like uh, Keith said, and then we, we heard uh, Stephen Nichols say that Machen said, is the individual soul standing, uh, sinful soul standing with a holy God. And 
these other things that we uh, that we're struggling with today, things that people have been struggling with through all of human history, those are just outworkings of that. Um, everybody knows that you know inherently Romans one that they are sinful, that God is holy, and we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We try to solve that problem on our own without using the Bible. So. Um, what was what was the dominant cultural movement in Machen's time? What did he say? Modernism. Modernism, yeah. So, what are the the tenets of modernism? Like, what are the ideas? What does modernism say? Uh, answers can be found through science. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, I'll give you guys a really, really brief, hopefully, really brief. Um, overview of, if you're interested in a little bit more detail from me, uh, if you're not, that's fine, you can find more detail from other people, but I, I gave a kind of two-part series um, a little over a year ago on, um, in the cultural engagement uh, series that we did, I think it was in May. So, sort of pre-modern times, the, the medieval uh, age in, in Western civilization there was the idea that uh, absolute truth exists, and it is found in the Bible, and also sort of a, a, a supporting stream of, of tradition, church fathers, um, and <clears throat> that was the truth about the world, and you had to conform yourself to that truth. You, you didn't get to choose, right? Then we move into sort of the Enlightenment, which is uh, to say that absolute truth exists, um, but, uh, I don't know, is it Voltaire? Or, uh, Man is the measure of all things. Was that Voltaire? Okay, so instead of uh, God defining what truth is, man uh, sort of becomes the standard. We can, we can figure out what truth is on our own. Moving into modernism, um, well, okay, so uh, between the Enlightenment and modernism, we have uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. He comes along and says, you know, through his fictional madman, um, God is dead and we've killed him. And the point he's trying to make is that you enlightenment thinkers have divorced the truth from God, essentially killing God. You've made yourselves the arbiters of truth, yet you live like God still exists. So Nietzsche was saying um, that there's this weird uh, tension because you don't want God to exist, but you want to continue to live as if God exists. And so He's kind of calling their bluff and saying, you, you can't live like that anymore. If God really doesn't exist, then we have to figure something out on our own. Modernism moves uh, sort of the standard of truth to um, science. Um, so there is an absolute truth, but it can only be demonstrated through empirical scientific fact. Um, why is that wrong? We'll, we'll talk about the errors of modernism before we move to talking about our time. Why is modernism incorrect? Or is it correct? Well, I think just the basis that um, it implies that science is somehow contradictory to God's truth. Mm -hmm. Whereas, we know, science only exists because of God. Right. He is only found to be truthful because he, because of him, mm -hmm. he created it. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of Christians make the mistake of keeping that that opposition between God and science. You know, the the modernists would say, you know, science is opposed to religion because they're they're different. And some Christians say, yeah, they're different. And so science is all bad. There's no reason to do anything scientific or whatever. That's not that's not the case. We're kind of adopting a false dichotomy between science and religion. Like, like what I said, science only makes sense because God exists, because he is a God of order and not a God of chaos, and because he created the world the way he did. Okay? Um, certainly some scientific uh, discoveries are incorrect, but that doesn't invalidate science as a whole. Um, the, the whole reason universities exist, like that colleges are a thing, is because the medieval uh, fathers maybe a bit anachronistic to call them fathers, but they wanted to develop a way to uh, see how um, God's truth extended to all areas of life. And so that's why we have colleges. So uh, what is the dominant cultural, I guess, philosophy of, of our time? So we had pre-modern, enlightenment, modern. Now, where are we? Yeah, postmodernism or metamodernism. Is that what okay, so what is that? What What are some of the tenets of postmodernism? So postmodernism moves away from, like, at least with modernism, there was some truth that could be found through science and humanistic ways. Postmodernism, there is no truth. It's much more like dark and depressed worldview. Yeah, yeah. So whereas pre-modern enlightenment and even modern thinkers uh, held on to the idea of absolute truth, of there being some sort of uh, bedrock upon which life uh, exists. A postmodern thinker would say, there's, there's nothing. We just kind of have to, you know, make it up on our own. And that's, that's a really scary thought to me, anyways, that I have to figure out on my own what truth is, because I know I'm certainly not capable of that. Um, so why, I mean, why is postmodernism? Well, also, but then also, truth is relative. Yes. It's not an objective, it's right. a subjective uh, feeling mm-hmm. that, that is up to the individual, not a, or, since there is no absolute truth, mm-hmm. you cannot absolutely claim you're right. However, that then implies that people should be tolerant of all viewpoints. Yeah. That intolerance of viewpoints must be crushed. Mm-hmm. Tolerantly, though. Yeah, so, um, but before, there, you know, there is absolute truth. The world is the way God says it is, and you have to adapt yourself to that. Now, it's... The world is what you say it is, and the world has to adapt itself to you. But there's lots of different people in the world who don't all agree on the way the world is. Um, I mean, even in just this room, I don't know how many people are in here, 15, 20. If there were 20 different ideas about what truth is, there's no way we could even talk to each other. It's very frustrating to have a conversation, to try to have a conversation a real conversation with someone who acts and believes as though there is no 
no objectives at all, no absolutes at all. You say, well, why, what are we even doing here? <coughs> yeah. um, okay, good. So <clears throat> I thought it was interesting that uh, Stephen Nichols brought up Machen's um, inaugural address as a, uh, as a professor. He talked about the awful holiness of God. Um, is that the right way to describe God or not? And why or why not? Well, it absolutely is the correct way. Uh, the term awful was transformed and warpified, however you say it, I think, uh, over the years um, to, to become a, something of a <clears throat> not awful, means to be full of awe, mm -hmm. standing in awe of something that is, uh, is basically outside of you, uh, is in a holy God, recognizing that God's can only be holy, can only be righteous, uh, and is all-powerful and all-knowing, um, would fill anyone Yeah, definitely. The awe that you feel isn't necessarily of a completely terrible, terrifying. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it's also uh, um, almost indescribable. Uh, the awe that you feel would either be one of elation or absolute desperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Till We Have Faces. Um, it says, uh, this is a C.S. Lewis book. Um, it says, many people have heard the voice of a man and mistaken it for the voice of God, but no one hears the voice of God and mistakes it for, for a man. Um, so yeah, there's, there's kind of the, <clears throat> the original meaning of awful, full of awe. It made me think about our, our conversation last week uh, about sort of the what I term the epilogue of the Ten Commandments. So Moses is up there. God is delivering his holy law to Moses. The people are down the mountain. They're, they're not, you know, in the presence of God the same way that Moses is. There's, there's thick darkness, there's clouds, there's smoke. But what's their reaction to seeing God deliver his holy law to Moses? What do, what do they do? Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, uh, the people were afraid, they trembled, they stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Um, that, I mean, that's awful in the sense of they're full of awe at the holiness of God. And that awe at the holiness of God and their knowledge of themselves leads them to terror. Um, so I... I wanted to make that connection because we talked about that last week. Um, near the end, uh, Stephen Nichols talk, talked about sort of the, the work that the church has had to do from the beginning. So what is that? What has the church sort of had to do from the beginning? Combating untruth. Okay, so combating untruth and? Yeah, proclaiming the truth. So we, we proclaim the truth. Where is that truth found? 
okay? And we combat error, and where do we find the tools to combat that error? Scripture. Yeah, not, you're not like, oh, I'm going I'm to say this really smart, witty thing, and it'll fall apart. Um, right, there's, I've uh, recently, I was just listening to a, a podcast, it is a recording of uh, Dr. Carl Truman's medieval uh, church history lecture, and he said something that um, I thought was, was pretty relevant. He said there's a difference between losing an argument and being wrong. There's also a difference between winning an argument and being right. Just because you win an argument doesn't mean you're right. Just because you lose an argument doesn't mean you're wrong. Um, it's kind of similar with sharing your faith. Just because you, you share the gospel with someone and they don't immediately convert, does that mean that the gospel is false? No, it just means you are not the one that's going to save them. Um, okay, so how can we as individual believers support this necessary work? So we're talking about the work of the church as a whole. You know, we're thinking about the church uh, throughout all of time. We're thinking about even the, the, the church in general now. What can we do as individual believers? Because the church is not just it's not just a general thing, but it's made up of individual children of God. What can you do about it? What can I do about it? As Peter says in First Peter, uh, we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. So we do that in our respective uh, spheres with our respective responsibilities. Mm-hmm. You had a, a former pastor who would he would often encourage or, or exhort the congregation to speak often and well of Jesus Christ. And that, that sticks with me. So proclaim the excellencies of Christ um, wherever you are, whenever you are there. Um, okay, what else? What else can we do? I mean, in today's day and age, there's no excuse for a Christian to not be fully equipped to the truth. Mm-hmm. Like we were saying, you know, that podcast of medieval church history, you know, like a hundred years ago, people and nations um, context would probably give them a lot to have that type of education. Yeah. And we just scroll through Apple Podcasts and find out, oh, this sounds interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many resources that we have outside of Scripture to help maintain the truth. Mm-hmm. It is our responsibility to consume those and build that good doctrine, build that strength of faith. So that way, one, we can help support our own local context, you know. So we have brothers and sisters who maybe they don't have the time, they don't have the capacity, but through us we can help build them up and, you know, just strengthen that church body and local. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, sort of a, so, so, you know, I just said just because you lose an argument doesn't mean you're wrong. But it, if you lose an argument because you don't uh, you haven't made a good use of your time, you haven't studied the Word, you haven't availed yourself of regular preaching of the Word, uh, the sacraments, prayer, um, all those things. You, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you're wrong, but it means you're not as prepared as you could be. There, there's certainly a wealth of, of information and resources that we can and should <clears throat> avail ourselves of. Good. 
regularly praying the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. reflecting on each petition, praying each petition, and that would be what we're called to do that. Yeah. And God works through that, mm -hmm. through that prayer. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also, um, well, I don't know how to say this without. Um, live, living as though you believe what you say. Okay, so uh, obviously we're not um, we're not justified by our works. We're not converting anyone by having stellar lives, and we shouldn't be hypocritical about it. We shouldn't uh, live one you know live one way uh, around other people and live a different different way you know on our own in our bedrooms by ourselves. Um, but your what the Puritans called your conversation, your way of life, does speak to the world about the truth or lack thereof of Christianity. If you say you are a Christian and you live completely opposite of that, what are you telling the world? I'm not saying that, you, you, I don't know if you've heard the, the phrase, like, uh, um, you know, preach the gospel and if you have to use words or something like that. Where it's the idea that you can you can just be a good person and people will see that and uh, there is something to that but you also have to use your words to, to preach the gospel um, but so so yeah prayer uh, regular reading of the word living uh, as consistently as you can through the power of the Holy Spirit um, with what you believe. Um, Okay, good. So the last question is, uh, what lessons do you think you can slash will learn through the study of Christianity and liberalism? Um, just think about that on your own. This, if you want to look at the book, you can come up and look at my copy. Um, it's a great book. I, I have listened to it. I have not read it. I know some people make a, a sharp distinction between those two things. Um, but I, I, will, I am planning on reading this copy. So uh, I would highly recommend it to you. It's not required. You don't have, you know, there's you're not going to have to like check off the chapters that you read before you, you watch this, but highly recommend it. Um, any questions before we close in prayer? All right. Let's pray. Our great holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for, uh, again, for this time that we've had to uh, hear from Stephen Nichols and uh, to hear about the life and the message of Jay Gresham Machen, we thank you for this opportunity that we'll get to study Christianity and liberalism. We pray that you would help us to, um, to see your truth as revealed in your word through this book and through this teaching series. We pray that you would <clears throat> sharpen our understanding of uh, your truth, the truth. Sharpen our understanding of ourselves, uh, how simple we are in the face of your holiness, that that would deepen our gratitude for your salvation through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like Christ for your glory through this series. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts for worship, for a corporate worship service. Help us to seek your face, praise your name, uh, listen to the word uh, read, sung, and preached. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. May you use this time to edify us, to build us up into the image and likeness of your Son, Christ. 
for your glory, and for your kingdom to spread. We pray all these things in Christ's name, through your spirit. Amen.